Hi, this is Carrie with the Promise Podcast. This is part two of the series on abusive family systems. And I have guest Beth with us today. Beth is an auntie of three, a special ed teacher and educational advocate. She went to grad school in Boston and just moved from there after 14 years. She has also a background in martial arts. Hi, Beth. Hi, Carrie. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Oh my gosh, absolutely. And like you said, I am uh, new to Florida, and I don't know how I lasted in Boston for 14 years. Um, It's freezing up there. It's actually nine degrees up there today, so I am thoroughly enjoying the warmth and the sun and the beach down here. Um, It's just great, and Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the martial arts because that is something that I'll probably reference a couple of times. It is a huge support for me and something I never thought of until, you know, five or so years ago. And it's just allowed me and opened up a lot of opportunity to heal. Um, And I didn't even know that going in. Um, So I love sharing kind of what I got from it and what I see other people benefit from. Um, I feel like anybody that goes in can kind of take away at least something. So. Absolutely. I am such a fan of martial arts. Um, I did it too, actually, when I was a kid for about, I want to say four years, four or five years, maybe. And I remember I loved it and learned so much from it too. Yes. And so I didn't get to it till my adult life, but that's okay. And um, it really became a second home and a safe haven for me. So I'm excited to kind of try to find that down here as well. Um, And I actually stopped because of some of the things I'll be talking about medically and psychiatrically and with the trauma, um, you know, had, I had to kind of put a stop to it, uh, for a little while while my body heals. Um, yeah. And so I'm excited to rejoin at some point in the near future. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I can understand that. So share with us what your upbringing was like. Sure. So, um, being, in and around my house was very complicated and difficult. I am one that didn't really realize or learn about this until I sought help in my 20s. So I'm able to tell you all of this now, but even going into my adulthood, I I wasn't sure that any of this was an issue or a problem. So Mm. again, you know, being in the house was very difficult. um, And my dad was, you know, typical kind of at work all the time. And my mom was home taking care of us. And I have a brother and a sister who were very high maintenance and dealing with a lot of behavioral issues that I didn't quite understand at the time. But I knew in the chaos, that wasn't something that felt safer that I wanted to be around. So once I gained some great treaters and all of that, I learned how sort of abnormal that home environment is or unhealthy that may not even be abnormal it's happening so much but um how unhealthy it actually was um Mm -hmm. so 
luckily I have a very big extended family that um, helps and supports me. And um, the, the biggest difficulty for me was um, dealing with my brother who was my, the primary abuser. And so growing up, I thought he was my best friend. And so that was very confusing for me at the time as a child, not knowing. And like I said, not learning really that that anything that was going on was um, different from, you know, your next door neighbor. And so it was very easy for me to fall into his traps and it actually still is. And um, Mm. it's unbelievable the things he can do when you're dealing with someone with narcissism and all of that. And I was such a good kid because I was watching what was happening with my sister and brother and felt like I just needed to do the right thing all the time that it became a little excessive. And so people thought, you know, okay, well, she's doing great. Like, and just let me do what I needed, which was fine in the moment. Um, But that led to a lot of childhood neglect. So I really didn't grow up until I actually was an adult, um, which is a Mm. very interesting concept and can be very confusing at times. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, segues into a lot of my story and, and how I came about learning what I did with some really fabulous treaters. So how about your, um, your parents, were were they, what was their presence like in your life at that time? So growing up, unfortunately, you know, my dad and mom both didn't, they came from nothing dirt poor to the extreme. Mm -hmm. And, um, fortunately my father built a great business and was successful, but that was in lieu of being home. So he wasn't there. And so it was my mom just with the three of us. And um, like I said, it was very difficult because she was so busy trying to manage two of them that I thought, okay, well, I'll just kind of leave her alone. And so I never had a maternal or paternal connection that um, I didn't know I needed till later uh, once I became an adult and just, I didn't quite understand and I didn't want to share or upset the cart at all so I I just was very quiet and they would ask questions and I really wouldn't talk much I actually remember um, like when I was going to get my license at 16 and my dad was like the rule's gonna be that you have to like have a conversation and so (laughs) one would think that would be a little bit of a red flag like I'm at 16 here and they're begging me to converse with them and it I'm not sure if it, I was angry at the time. I don't think so. I just, for some reason, that's just what felt safe to me is I just didn't want to share anything. And so I really was quiet. And um, when my brother and sister were settled or having a good day, then they would sort of look more into like, well, why are you being so quiet? Like, tell us what's going on. And um, mm. they were unfortunately, and this is something I even struggled with up until last night, um, the, the maternal motherly uh, classic, you know, TV mom that you see was definitely not my 
my scenario, um, she, I, I know she tries very hard, um, but I don't think she has that maternal instinct of like that loving, supportive, caring nature. And I did fine as a child, but it, you know, then really started to show in my 20s that because I missed out on that, it caused some greater issues than later in life. Um, I didn't realize how much I actually wanted that connection and I didn't have it. And so I feel like sometimes mm. I'm making up for lost time. Yeah. And, and not just like wanting it. I mean, desiring it, but truly needing it, you know, as a child, we, we need to have that bond with our, our parents, you know, both, both parents um, really are essential to our development in childhood Mm -hmm. to have that connection with them, emotional and physical connection with them. And so I relate to what you're saying there. My dad, he traveled a lot for work too. And he was an alcoholic. So he was an alcoholic until I was 12. And even after he quit drinking, he behaved very much like a dry drunk because it was he had dealt with the alcohol addiction issue, but not all the other underlying issues. And he he didn't ever go to a recovery center. He didn't ever go. He didn't get treatment. He he quit cold turkey, which is amazing Um, and definitely has a strong will when he wants to do something and I admire him for being able to do that and, and never go back to it. Um, but he, he never got the psychological help beyond the alcohol abuse to help him deal with some of the other underlying underlining issues. And so it was still a lot of, um, chaos beyond him getting sober in our home And, um, it's interesting that you bring up the, the fact that you were more withdrawn and quiet Mm -hmm. because I was as well until I was in my teenage years. And so my family would always say, she's always thinking, you know, she's, she's the thinker of the family. (laughs) That sounds so familiar. I bet. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I never knew anything about this, but I watched this YouTube video last night um, from Dr. Romani. I don't know if you know who she is. She, she is like an incredible uh, doctor. She specializes in narcissism, narcissistic issues within families. Oh, wow. I will have to check that out. She is an expert. I will definitely, if you haven't heard of her, I'll send you some info on her because she is just amazing. Yeah, that would be great. She was talking about um, truth tellers. Okay. And the way that she referenced what a truth teller is, was going back into their childhood development years where these kids similar to, to like how we were, Mm -hmm. would kind of sit back and watch the family dynamic and what was going on and could see that there were issues, even not being able to put our finger on it, but 
just causing us to kind of withdraw and emotionally withdraw, physically withdraw, and just kind of observantly like ruminate on things because we knew it wasn't a safe place to just be our authentic self. But we knew, and we knew this because our observance was something is off, something is wrong. Um, We don't know exactly what that is because we're children, but a lot of things we could put a finger on. Like, for instance, I remember asking my mom when I was 10 years old um, if she thought my dad was having an affair. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because he was never home. Right, right. So it was like, you're kind of putting these pieces together going, you know, what's going on? Exactly. So it's just, I thought that was really interesting that you were sharing that you had that same kind of behavior growing up, being more quiet. And I'm so grateful you're saying this because, I mean, I have done extensive treatment that will, you know, kind of discuss a little bit years and years of trauma treatment and all of this. And that's new news to me. And that's what I'm trying to share with other people yeah. is there's always more to learn. And, you know, I, I felt like maybe I, I was the only one that did that in their childhood as a reaction to what was going on. So it's very helpful to hear you share that and kind of feel that, you know, not that I was alone in that behavior um, because right. I learned, you know, what they were doing was wrong, but I didn't. I didn't quite get that piece of it. So that's actually really helpful to hear. Right. I know. And I, and I had never heard anything about that before either. I mean, I knew that there were some connections with the being withdrawn part, but I never knew exactly what that meant. And I'm, when I was listening to her talk about it, it made me recognize how I've seen that in my own kids, but especially my youngest son, because he just, she said the kids like that over time, they just get it. And like the rest of the family kind of tends to be still caught up in their own chaos. And she said, often they will um, become excluded from the family whether emotionally, physically, um, they will also end up being the scapegoat in the family because they, the family knows that that person sees it. That makes sense. What's going on. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It is very interesting because I was very much rewarded for that behavior. So it felt like, okay, (laughs) I'm doing something right here. I guess I shall continue. And it's just yep. so interesting looking back. Yeah. And, and that's interesting that you say that too, because I, same with me, it was, it was kind of like I was rewarded for it, but I was also subtly criticized for it too. Yeah. Yep. And then when I did start coming out and having some defiant behaviors in my teenage years, which still were much lower on the scale than most defiant teens, mm-hmm. um, because I, because I feared getting in trouble. I really did. But 
um, when I did become more defiant, it was like, and, and not more, not just defiant, but like kind of coming into my own, like wanting to be able to express myself in my own way. Mm -hmm. It was looked at as, you know, oh my gosh, she's pushing back, you know, what is, what's wrong with her, you know? And then you're kind of like, you're shaking up the the family dynamic and the role that they've pretty much placed on you or um, expected of you yes within the family yes very much and then I think how you kind of came about in your teens is exactly what happened in my 20s and I so relate to um, the behavior I was so scared to make mistakes or get in trouble that I always was doing everything right but then um once some things happened in my 20s it was like you know I wasn't that quiet kid that didn't need anything anymore I needed some help and that was so Mm. foreign to them that it's still a work in progress so it's yeah definitely something I like to you know keep an eye out as someone who works with kids just to you know, alert and see some of these red flags in hopes of, you know, catching on to it a little bit sooner um, than maybe my story or your story. That is so wonderful that you're doing that. And that is what kids need more than anything right now is they need a confidant. They need someone, you know, especially in the times we're living in today, it's, there's so much, um, there's so much going on. Like I've noticed just having my own kids where kids, especially when we lived in a neighborhood where there were a lot of kids close by from that they went to school with at very young ages coming over to our house and the parents not knowing they were over and then leaving them at our home overnight or until nine o'clock at night, you know, on a school night to come back and pick them up or not coming to pick them up. And then me having to drive them home or walk them home. And I'm going, what, where is the involvement right. like with the exactly. parents today? Yeah. It, it is. It's a crazy world out there and I'm not a parent yeah. and I can't speak to being a parent ever. I, I always tell the families I work with that, that I, I don't know the parent side of it, but I, I have been working with kids for ever since I was 10. I actually, I mean, that, that's a red flag right there. Why did I start working at 10 years old um, as like a mother's helper mm-hmm. babysitting? Um, you know, just another kind of escape out of the house. And right. Um, but yeah, my job before moving to Florida was actually a little bit different. So my degrees are in special education, but I see such a need for what you're discussing that I actually, until I moved, I worked on an adolescent inpatient psychiatric floor in a children's hospital. And so um, I know I didn't discuss that a ton with you, but uh, the primary issue was their mental health and safety. And so um, this was a locked unit. So these are the kids that have either attempted suicide or have homicidal behavior so pretty severe Um, and so yes I taught them um, their schooling but I also worked 
on the floor and with the staff helping to sort of train the staff on how to manage behaviors and stuff. I mean, they were more extreme there than in the school, but, um, and then you just see the parents that are heartbroken and or parents that drop them off and don't even come visit. So I got to see and experience so much and, and that experience working there was one of the most rewarding. And if I, if I hadn't moved, I would have never left that job. And I think um, having the background with trauma and all of that allows me some of these really cool assets that people still are like, how's that possible? Because there'll be this big chaotic you know, scenario and they call it code overhead and I'm like the calmest person possible and everyone's running around like crazy because <laughs> chaos is calm to me. And when it's quiet, yeah, when it's quiet, I get like, what's, what's, what's happening here? Um, <laughs> and so I couldn't really ever answer the question, like, why are you so calm during all of this? Like, oh, let me tell you my lifelong story. Uh, so, yeah, but it, it allowed me to do yeah. this job that like people ran away from. Wow. So, wow. I, I totally know what you mean by that because people would look at me cross-eyed the same way when I would be in the midst of a chaotic situation and I'm totally calm. Exactly. Yes. And I'm like, well, if you knew my life, you would understand. Right. Right. <laughs> And I would get asked, I would literally get asked, how are you so calm? And like, you're like, Uh you're saying, we're not going to like sit down over tea and discuss my whole life story. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, I'm glad to hear that I've, um, that you've had those same questions asked because yeah, that's the same. I've heard the same thing. How are you so calm right now? Or, you know, yeah, it's. It's amazing um, what what that does to us. And it's kind of a way like where we are internally protecting or coping without even realizing yes. it growing up. And my brother, he had a very different, now my older brother, he's my half brother. He didn't really grow up with okay. us. He came over every other weekend, you know, for years, but that that stopped in his early teenage years. And my younger brother, he's my full-blooded brother. We're only 18 or 16 months apart. And um, he had a very different experience than me growing up. And it's, it's interesting because he, I've, all, I've always considered him to be a very more selfish person mm-hmm. um, because he just now he's a fireman. So it's, it's kind of interesting. He's in a a position of service, but he, um, he was always more to himself. Like he just never was naturally considerate of other people. Like if we ordered pizza or we had candy or something, he would never think to like save me a piece or, It's so interesting that you're saying this and I'm honestly writing it to remind myself because interestingly enough, my brother, well, he went in the military because he was having difficulties as well, not only as an abuser, but um, as a alcoholic and drug addict 
as well. And so they need, my parents needed to make a radical change. So they put him in the military. But now that he's sort of established his life, um, you know, he's looked at as this hero in the military, helping all these people. Yeah. And, and the way wow. you phrased it, like that he's, you know, just doesn't have that same experience you had, like it, it frames it totally different for me. Like it, it's so helpful. Um, how you say it like that um yeah yeah because it when we've discussed we had a a pretty in-depth conversation not too long ago and um I I haven't spoken with my brother like that I had not had an actual conversation about our family or upbringing in in years and maybe not ever, to be honest, when I really think about it. Um, but it was so emotional for me to listen to him talk about our family and the way that he was so different from me. And he probably felt the same with what I was sharing as well. But my brother, he was looked at as the golden child. He was looked at as the one that could do no wrong, Mm -hmm. especially in my mother's eyes. And so anytime he would get in trouble for anything, he would blame it on me oh my goodness. at all the time, blame it on me. It, even if he couldn't be more wrong, like for example, I remember one time he put a soda can in the freezer oh. and we were home by ourselves we were teenagers and I opened the freezer and the soda can I, I took the soda can out of the freezer because I thought, oh, no, this isn't good, mm-hmm. right? And I put the can on the counter. Well, as soon as I set the can on the counter, it exploded. Because, of mm-hmm. course, you can't put a soda can sure. in the freezer because that is what yeah. happens. <laughs> it's a good science experiment. <laughs> it exploded. And I was like, oh. yeah. you know, I, I said his name. I'm like, come in here and like clean this mess up because I think I was like 16 and he was 15. And I was like, you need to clean this up because you put this in the freezer. Obviously I didn't do it. So he comes in and he's like, Oh no, you took it out of the freezer. It's your fault. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So that was just like one minor perfect example of how like he had done this, but because I was trying to be mindful and not allow it to explode in the freezer, I took it out and set it on the counter. It's my fault that the mess was made and I should be the one to clean it up. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny you explain that because like I kind of did the opposite is I spent so much time taking the blame from my brother um, Mm -hmm. and trying to mask his behavior. Like say he was drinking too much and vomited. Like I make sure it was cleaned up so he wouldn't get in trouble. And that's like that distorted narcissism that I was so stuck in that I thought that that is what I was supposed to do. Like, you're my best friend. Right. Let me make sure you don't get in trouble and cover your tracks like all the time. <laughs> um, and so I'm picturing that story and then kind of placing it in my family thinking like he would probably do something like that. And then I would my response would be like, oh, <laughs> somehow I actually ended up doing that. Um, it wasn't really him, like, and trying to reframe it. Oh, so you took that yeah. blame on. So as you were saying that, it reminded me that that's a, I did sort of the complete 
opposite and just thought the right thing to do was to make him look just yeah, clean it up exactly <laughs> oh yeah that is that is really the hardest to to think back on I think because their experience is so so different from ours and and it's it, and it's it's interesting because our experiences are so different the way that our experiences impacted us are different right. and affected us moving into adulthood are different. And so it's, it's just one of those things like you can be two people growing up in the same home, but because of that abusive dynamic, it definitely will affect everyone on, on a different scale. It's not like you're, you're coming out, you, you have not all been treated equally. And I don't mean the same because I do believe that children need to be, um, to be treated, even disciplined differently, according to who, you know, the, the type of personality and whatever, you know, just differences that they have. Um, but there should still always be equality. And so in an abusive dynamic, there is not, there's no equality, um, and there's no mutuality between the relationships. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting thinking about my brother and, and just how different his, his experience was Yeah, and I from mine. So I have a younger sister as well. And so I think about her experience and I was sharing with um, my treaters yesterday, like that I believe she doesn't know what happened you know, in my childhood, she's five years younger, and I don't intend for her to know because she did have some sort of relationship with my brother that was not damaging or anything like that. And so why would I ruin mm-hmm. that? You know, like I, it, and it's just, it's so interesting with looking at three different kids in the same family and how different the experiences all were. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's very interesting. And my older brother, he's a fireman as well. So that's something that they've been able to connect on and they work in the same department even. So, um, or for the same department. So yeah, they, they actually have a much closer relationship now than I ever really did with both with either of them. But it is interesting how things kind of get will get flipped back on to you when you think about like how different your experience was and the way that I've been treated in my family is that, you know, there's something wrong with me Mm -hmm. because of the way I'm seeing things from, from my point of view, my experience growing up. And I remember my brother ratting me out a couple of times when we were teenagers Mm -hmm. And never once did I rat him out when it came to what he did outside of our home. So like he would, similar to your brother, like he would go, I knew, I I knew when he lost his virginity, you know, like I knew he shared so much with me and I was there for a lot of things that he did, even some, some, you know, things that my parents would have just been horrified And I'm just like, I would take that to the grave with me, you know, like I would never, I know, (laughs) like I would never share that, but 
it's it's funny how they still it, like listening for years well into my 20s to my parents just glorify him right. and talk about this perfect child that he was growing up when I hadn't even done like some of the things that he had done I had I to this day have never done right. yeah so it's just so funny it is. and it's, it's funny <laughs> thinking that, back how similar it is the same you know, I know we haven't talked about this before. And so it's just ironic that how similar it, it actually yeah, is. Yeah, definitely. So what was the most impactful experience? And I know that this last area, um, we just kind of went off, but I'm so glad we covered all that we did just now on that. I am too. So what was, yeah, really insightful. I, I enjoyed that. So what was the most impactful experience in your life growing up that made you realize what was going on wasn't healthy and wasn't normal? Sure. So as I sort of started to talk about this, I I had another thought as I was reflecting on this question a little bit earlier um, or just kind of thinking about um, what I would talk about. And so um I remember as we were talking about our brothers and stuff like that, this extended family that I referenced would tell me, and I didn't know at the time, like, you are an angel, like, don't ever change, promise me you'll never be like them. And I was like, what are they talking about? Like, oh, my annoying sister who's, you know, like, is so needy and my brother who's misbehaving. Okay, yeah, like, sure, I'll never, I'll never be like them. Um, But I didn't know at that time. So Really, it's um, about the work that I've done um, primarily through McLean Hospital, which is a great place in Boston um, after grad school. And that, and it's very well marked in my memory because, um, you know, I was a perfectionist and wanted to do everything right. And so, you know, I did college, then grad mm-hmm. school, and, you know, 4.0 GPA or whatever in grad school, none of that matters, you know, once you graduate. but I started kind of decompensating right around the time of grad school graduation. And so I sought out some support and I couldn't figure out why I was feeling the feelings that were going on because I didn't know to tell um, the people I was reaching out to about my childhood or my relationships with the family. And um, so I was labeled with all of these diagnoses that just Wow, way off. And so um, oh, I bet. I remember someone who actually sat down, her name's Claudia, a very inspirational person in my life who unfortunately passed away. But she worked with me for probably near a decade, helping me unravel this and understand that my experience wasn't a healthy one in my family and that there was abuse and I can't even imagine trying to be a treater telling a patient these things like that there was abuse and your parents did neglect you and all these things and so you get told Mm. all of this and then it's like okay now what do I do with this information and so I found myself really falling apart and just unraveling and uh, she was always there and always helped me navigate any new territory and Uh, I wasn't familiar with Boston I went there to go to grad school and planned on leaving after like I said I don't like the cold that's why I'm loving it down here in Florida Uh, 
So she would navigate any curveball thrown my way, which it was quite a bit because I was trying to figure out what happened and put put the pieces together. And okay, you're telling me this person isn't my best friend. Like, you know, friends don't do those things. And so um, to me, she's my personal hero. And um, she would always, always call me her angel. And so when she was sick, um, it was, it was cancer. So we knew when things were happening. Uh, I remember her saying to me, you know, she just sort of reassured me that she would be my angel now because I think she knew how hard it would be for me to navigate without her. Um, oh, wow. And so she's oh, such a special uh, lady. Yeah. Makes me want to cry. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's so precious. Oh, she brings tears to my eyes. Every time I talk about her, I miss her immensely. And, um, but she is the one that, Wow. She is the staple. She she is the one that didn't give up and just got the diagnosis on me. She never took my money. She didn't want, you know, that was not what she was about. She wanted to help me. Yeah. And all the meanwhile, suffering for 16 years with breast cancer, that like you wouldn't even know if she didn't tell you. Wow. And so to me, she's like beyond a hero. Like she's like a superhero. Um and then I was, you know, I'm fortunate and I am fortunate enough to have that extended family that kind of stepped in here and there, let me live with them or a family friend. And, um, you know, also another kind of red flag, why am I going to live with other people? Like thought it was all normal. Um, so she's just, she is, and while she was on earth with us, just um, that person. Wow. That is so beautiful. I I love hearing stories like that because um, it's that person that just completely shifts and breaks all of, of the bondage of the label, the false labels. Like you said, the diagnoses that were just so off. Right. Um, and it's interesting because I never have gotten a, like an, a false diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but I have heard of so many, um, women who have been in situations like us who, um, were diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and just things that I'm, I'm going, you know, as a, um, a mental health healthcare professional myself and with my own training and experience, um, for over seven years now, I'm going, I'm sorry, where, yeah, <laughs> where, where in the world did they come up with this diagnosis? Because it like the, the criteria just is, doesn't even fit. So and what's, it's, it's crazy. What's funny is they did give me that diagnosis as, uh, as well. And at that time now, you know, I'm trying to figure out, okay, this so my family isn't all good. Let me see like how much I can separate and, you know, trying to take all of those things and figure it all out. And at the same time, somebody's telling me I have borderline personality disorder. I'm like, oh, okay. So I tell my parents <laughs> and I'm like, I have borderline personality disorder. And that is the only diagnosis oh. that they were like, yeah, you do. And <gasps> so 
Wow. Yeah. And so it's just interesting that you said that because I was like, they jumped on the bandwagon. They want like they wanted treatment. They sent me somewhere for a treatment like for that. Wow. And then all of a sudden when years later I told them like that's actually not the diagnosis. Like unfortunately, you know, sometimes they don't get it right, like without telling them everything. <laughs> and my diagnosis is PTSD. Nope. They they won't ever use those words. Oh, and so how did your parents respond to that? Were they more resistant to um, hear you say that? Yep. So they still, (laughs) I mean, I'll still explain it to them. I don't think I've ever heard them say my daughter has PTSD, but they were, had bumper stickers for the other one. Like, I'm not kidding. Like (laughs) things on a refrigerator, books, like how did, how does a sibling um, talk to someone with their, and then all of a sudden when it switched, it all went away. And so it just reminded me, yeah, I mean, we have so many great mental health people out there like you or like Claudia, who I was referencing, but we're still kind of stuck in this system that needs a lot of help. And, you know, it's not, I don't blame a certain person for saying that's my diagnosis. You know, I presented and they have, you know, what, an hour to figure out what's wrong with you. And so they take their best guess. It isn't something they can see. Um, so it's just yeah. ironic you brought that one up because that's exactly what happened. Wow. Yeah, it's it's truly amazing. And it's so damaging to our healing, mm-hmm. you know, to somebody who has truly has PTSD and needs to needs to hear that needs right. to to get the that information behind that so that they can heal so that they can be aware of what's going on and um and make the changes and the boundaries set the boundaries and you know all of these things but um that are desperately needed for for health and healing and um and they're not getting it and that's the most heartbreaking part. It causes further damage to the victim. Right. And it just prolongs prolongs their healing. Yes. And so you lose more time than you know, trying to navigate. Um, so that was that was a little that was a tricky one for sure. But um, I can see why they grabbed onto that one and not not the actual one. Right. And, and that is, um, that is just a perfect example of how the family wants to keep you in this role that they have placed on you. They, and, and they will not accept any other, um, they will not accept any other truth about you or the situation because they have this narrative of you and, how they are to interact with you and how you are to interact with them in their heads and anything that conflicts or opposes that will not be accepted. It's so helpful to hear that and so validating because I don't care how many years of you know trauma work I have under my belt it still hurts and so yeah. to hear you know you explain it that way it really validates me especially right now you know, in the situation I'm in currently. So I just, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, So thank you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I just appreciate you sharing 
with, with me and with us, with our audience, just what you've been through and how that has impacted you. And I mean, without this, I mean, people would not be as aware, you know, as, as they should be. And so I'm, I'm grateful to, to just be having, sharing this, this, um, podcast with you. Me too. And I, I too hope, you know, somebody gained something from this and that we just need to keep talking about this, keep getting it out there. Um, it's scary and it's hard and it's, you know, uncharted territory, but I think the only way we're going to get these things to be a little bit better is more awareness. Absolutely. Yeah. So share a little about, um, I would love to hear your thoughts on the mind body connection you've experienced from the psychological effects of the abuse. Sure. So I think I've kind of underlyingly referenced some of the things that are going on, but um, coincidentally or not, I mean, we can take that all sorts of ways. Um, At the same time that I was starting to like decompensate or notice that there was a big mental health component that I needed to address, I was starting to struggle medically. And it was just sort of migraines. And I was like, getting some treatment. And so they weren't treating them correctly, which if you know migraine, if you take the wrong medicine, it can cause rebound headaches and then you get in the cycle. So, um, Mm. you know, I was trying to figure out that whole world world, and that world became even more invalidating um, because again, now I'm reporting something they can't see either. And now I'm saying I have PTSD, but I, I have really bad migraines and I need help. And so it became this juggle of um, kind of like trying to prove to them that this was the truth um, versus them writing it off. Maybe like she's just anxious or, you know, she's dealing with trauma. Um, I, I really believe strongly that they are so interconnected. And when, you know, when things happen with me that flare up trauma responses and stuff like that. I absolutely get migraines and headaches mm-hmm. and all these things that I'm dealing with. And so they're very interrelated, but they're also very separate. Mm. And so that might sound a little bit confusing um, because I think a lot, and you'll see a lot in the literature now, like the mind body connection and like the gut with the brain, how connected they are. And so like secondary we kind of fast forward to dealing with some now very complex GI issues. And I went through the same routine of pleading with doctors to examine me, like figure out what's wrong. Like I'm telling them something's wrong and they're saying, well, you're just anxious. And so that was, I mean, that has been a big piece of my work because of just, I shut down internally. I can't, go into a doctor's office calmly Mm. anymore I'm so anxious I'm so nervous they're not gonna believe me and that okay maybe I am making this up like it just it starts that trauma response again and so it's hard to tease out what's actually real and not um so I just try to speak to them about 
my awareness of how the mind and body is connected. And I preface all my visits with that in hopes that they hear that. Um, but it's still, again, one of those things that is stigmatizing <laughs> and it, it causes a lot of issues when you come in and say like, hey, I have PTSD and I'm also trying to um, see if you can figure out what's wrong with my yeah. stomach right now. Um, as soon as they saw my chart, because it's the same chart where you go everywhere, they just would say, you're fine. You're anxious. You're upset. You're this, you're that. You're stressed out. Why don't you go relax? Like maybe see your therapist more. And I would say like, I understand that my stomach has some of this stuff because of trauma, but right now I really need you to look like literally look inside <laughs> my esophagus and see right. that oh my god you have four ulcers and erosion to your esophagus and stomach like there are other things that are happening too and you know maybe it's caused solely by that but like who cares it still needs medical attention yeah exactly um, it's like you're putting so out now, a fire yeah. you know it's like right now I need treatment right. for the physical part. So that way when I can receive physical, at least physical comfort and treatment to the degree in which I can start healing, you know, or get some relief from it, then I can go focus on some of the emotional stuff. But right now it's almost like the yeah. body, it's just gotten so out of hand when it becomes physical and now we have to be treated medically and for these medical issues that have come about. And I don't think that necessarily 100% of it is um, psychological um, trauma that's, that's caused it. I think a lot of it can also be genetic. Um, we have a, a whole genetic makeup included in a lot of our health issues as well. So there's a variety of things that get overlooked simply because the doctors know, and it's, it's funny because whenever I see a doctor now, I never tell them that I had panic disorder in my twenties. I never, like when I went to, to a heart doctor for the first time, um, he put anxiety on it, but then after doing all the testing, which he didn't want to do at first, I do have a heart condition. You know, they found that I have this heart condition. Wow. So it's something that I have to monitor now. It's something that's gotten worse actually with age. So it's something I do have to keep an eye on. I've had to be on medication for it at times, um, especially over the last couple of years. So it's, it's interesting because there is a whole other, like I was saying, this genetic part because my whole family struggles with heart issues. Um, but that is also goes hand in hand with the psychological or emotional part of things. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all intertwined. And I'm glad that, that we're talking about this because like you said, it's kind of taboo still in, in the medical profession or in families where you're trying to get these things recognized and they're just being ignored yeah, and it's it's very hard um, to hear it from the doctors, obviously, and then currently to come home and it be reinforced exactly. by parents who, you know, now I'm in my later 30s and I'm still trying to please, you know, like, 
underlying, like I know through treatment that I'm, I'm not purposely trying to do that, but my brain sometimes defaults to old mechanisms of like trying to please them and keep them happy. And it's just unbelievable that um, I still will believe that they'll say, oh, you're like, you're not sick. Yeah. Okay. Like you can't argue back with that. So it just gets so tricky. And they're like, you just need more help. Um, You need to go to a facility, like a mental health facility and get more Mm. help. And I'm like, I literally just like did so many testing, like so much testing and now have gastroparesis and all this stuff. And it's just like, they don't want to accept it again. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because it's almost like I've noticed with my family, it's like whether you're playing the role of in their narrative as the, the, the bird with the injured wing, you know, or the golden child or, you know, the outcast, the black sheep, whatever it is, whatever their, their role or the way that Mm -hmm. they choose to narrate you in their mind. Um, Like you said, there's no changing it. And it's almost as if they, they, they won't accept it. They won't accept anything outside of that narrative. And that's something that I've realized even very recently because I was very sick as a kid growing up. I had a ton of allergies. I had really bad asthma. The doctor said I had acute asthma. I had to be on breathing treatments. Mm -hmm. I always had to have an inhaler on me. And my, my parents would do the stupidest things. I mean, they were just stupid. They would, um, stupid things. They would take me to out over to our, my aunt and uncle's house who smoked in their house and we would stay the weekend with them, you know, and here I have acute asthma in a home where smokers are smoking inside their home. Like, (laughs) and I remember there being so many nights where I'm like, God, I was praying as a child to not die overnight. Yep. That is so scary. And to have to think about those things as a child, just um, that breaks my heart because a child shouldn't be sitting there fearing, you know, their life. Yeah. So it's almost like they, whether it's psychological or physical families are, you know, people all have their, their, their narrative, their thing. But I've noticed with my family that they've always enjoyed being in relationship with me more when I've had to depend on them. And any time that I've, I've needed their help financially or physically to be there for me, um, they will rush. I mean, rush to kind of be the hero in that. Um, yeah, yeah. But then otherwise they don't want to experience any other area of my life with me when it comes to successes, growth, when it comes to um, being healthy and happy and, and enjoying life, it's there. That's when they're distant from me. And it's almost like they would rather have me in this place of weakness where, where they can show up and be the hero and, and expand their ego and have control and power and then 
hold it over my head to say, look at everything I do for you. And you can't deny us now because this is what we've given you. This is what we've been there for you to do. And, and it just, it repeats that cycle of abuse throughout your life. And it, I almost, I'm glad this is a podcast because I would literally ask you to just rewrite what you just said, because oftentimes I still struggle um, trying to find the words to explain what's going on or how I'm feeling. And so that is exactly mm-hmm. what's happening. Live time, past, everything. The only relationship I have with my parents is right. because I'm sick. Yeah, medically. that doesn't surprise me. And so outside of that, we have zero things that we discuss, talk about, whatever. And um, they know I would probably disconnect much more. Um, And so I do have the privilege of having their financial Mm -hmm. support and all of that. But like you were discussing, that comes with so (laughs) much baggage for me because I am just reliving and rehashing and it's not a light decision, you know, to come back to them ever. I think for someone with history right. like this, um, but it's, you know, that's the best I can do right now. And so it's, it's that yeah. double-edged sword. Yeah, it really is. And so have you found in the space that you're in with them, any strategies um, that are helpful for you to manage the, the effects in your current situation of, you know, just having to still, to still deal with that. Yes, I think, um, so the biggest piece for me that's helpful is having this team outside of, outside of the house, outside of family that, and that can look like a ton of different things. For me, it's a therapist, psychiatrist, a group that I do. Um, maybe it's doctors or other other family members, friends, you know, kind of your family that you make on your own. I think that support network is what is getting me through, or actually, I know it is. Um, and so to have support elsewhere, because it's not coming from here, is really what makes or breaks it's like that is the only way I've been able to stay week after week um, because there's been several times that I have packed up my bags and left during this episode of the past couple months Mm. because I just couldn't take it anymore and then I would get home and be like okay what am I going to do now Um, and so having someone else to kind of bounce ideas off of you know check in am I am I thinking logically on this or my way off you know and then trying to fizzle through what's being said, you know, do I believe them? Is that actually true? Or is that part of what they're dealing with? Um, And so I've, I've found a lot of help in my supporters. And then even things like little medical um, support groups on Facebook or whatever, even if I'm not active in it, just reading about someone else's experience or what they're, what they may do. I find that very helpful. I think the biggest thing though, like live time, aside from all the work that you'll have to do is learning boundaries, um, which is so hard. And I will never undermine that because 
it's it'll be something I work mm. on for the rest of my life um, is, you know, figuring out what boundaries you want and then how the heck yeah. to implement them um, where you're already in a family system that's abusive in the past and, you know, potentially looking different now. So um, it has been, that has been very, very hard. And so um, the boundaries piece has been, what's helped me and um when things are kind of calm and quiet and they're a little bit more clear-headed i've actually started telling them what i need help with like for example i will say like when i'm feeling this sick and you're yelling at me it's really hard and it makes me feel a lot worse what i need in that moment would be for you to say something like, I'm sorry to hear you're feeling so bad right now. Like, is there anything I can do? So it's almost like <laughs> yeah. I'm like coaching them to, to do Good what I you. want. Like I'm telling them what I want them to do in hopes that the next time they'll do it. Now, it, it, I would love to say that works, but um, they are who they are and they, that's, they're limited to a degree. And I think that's another piece is accepting that they can only do so much and I need to understand that um that's their like that's the line that they draw they can't their personality cannot extend past that and be what I want it to be because I want a mom right now that sits with me while I'm sick and you know maybe hugs me or something like when you're sick you want kind of that motherly attention and I'm not getting any Mm. of that I never have and so I have to accept that that just yeah. is and but you for or at least me I forget and so it's a constant just work in progress of reminding myself you know these are her limitations that's to no fault of anyone that's what she can offer if I if I need something else I have mm. to find it somewhere else um and that's hard in the moment yeah. that's I mean I say these things and this has taken so many people to help me with it um, and that's why I say the team first, because all of the things I'm suggesting and doing, I couldn't have come up with like on my own and all of that. So, and you know, um, when you think about it, it's so simple. It's like, you're literally asking for someone to just hold you. I mean, what a simple task that is like j- just yeah. for someone, just for a mother to, wrap her arms around you and let you cry or just let you, you know, just be able to surrender in the moment to being loved and cared for. I mean, these are not unreasonable expectations. And that's the thing that I've noticed with narcissistic family members, especially is that they they try to convince you that your expectations are unreasonable and, and actually no, I mean, the way that they're looking at things and treating you is what is unreasonable. And I, I believe completely unacceptable in a lot of ways. So it's right. Yeah. It's not that you're, you're asking for too much. I mean, these are basic essential human needs. And I know how you feel there because with my husband, he would, um, 
we're separated now, but he would make me feel a lot of the times, you know, try to convince me I was not, I was being too needy or asking for too much. And I'm like, no, actually, you know, I'm not, but it, but I believed that I believed that for so long. Yes, exactly. And then you take that on you think, okay, I need to be responsible for being neglected essentially. And no, you don't. I mean, that's just wrong. That's abuse. That's abusive. It's mistreatment. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, we sit here and chat about it and I sit with my therapist and, but when you're, when it, when it is lifetime and it's happening, it just, it feels so real, like that you are the one that's wrong or like you just start questioning and it's so hard to believe. And that's why I need that reality check um, with, even if it's just a friend, you know, I have a lot of privilege to be able to have all these treaters and all of that. But it could be a friend, you know, hey, like, am I off here? You know, I'm, I'm feeling this way. And this is what I'm asking for. Like, is that is that right. too much? Like, that I'll ask people a lot. Like, sh- am I allowed to ask for that? Like, is that okay? And I'm 36. <laughs> like, that's silly. Like, I know. And I and I'm only one year older than you. So I mean, I, I still have to do the same thing. Because You've been so used to your whole life having to question your reality and your truth and, 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 and lacking so much validation because you've been literally trained to think this way. And so now it's like we're having to retrain our brains to, re- to real reality and go and put things into right. perspective and go, okay, this, this, no, I'm not off. This, this is acceptable. This is, this isn't okay. Or, you know, this is acceptable or it isn't okay. And, um, it's, it's a really, really tough thing to do because it is so ingrained in us, um, that you, you do it, but that's the gift and the blessing of who you are that you have that ability to be able to see it, to recognize it and get the help and, and then even exercise your boundaries, even if they're not working, even if they don't respond to it, you're still exercising those boundaries and, and standing up in your truth and saying, when you do this to me, it does not help me. You know, it would be more helpful if you did this. So good for you mm-hmm. because, I mean, some people don't even get there. So to be able to to express that and exercise that is such a beautiful thing. And just, just the beginning of where you're going to just continue to grow and heal Yes, definitely. So where, where do you see God in you um, with all of this, with this knowledge, with this wisdom? And I know right now you're in this position of dependence, um, but where do you right. see God in this and where he's taking you moving forward? Sure. So I'll kind of 
backtrack a little bit and sum it up um, just sort of that this was a very difficult thing as a child being forced upon, you know, Catholicism and then um, rebelling in my head. And um, once I started dealing with medical and um, mental health issues, I started revisiting it. And then um, I have a fabulous godfather who's mentored me and helped um, gently guide me in learning what I truly believe. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't have a great name for it or anything like that, but I've found my connection and I've found what I know and understand my purpose to be. Uh, And so that's how I kind of look at religion and, and God and that maybe I don't need an exact name for it. Um, but I found great pastors and places to go um, to get that support too, because that's also helpful. So um, it's very individualized. And I think everyone's story kind of um, also has a story with that piece as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It's um it's the spiritual connection that, that you're describing that um, I think really does play an important role in, in moving us through. And like you said, finding your purpose in it. Yeah. That is so beautiful. If there were one thing you could share with other women who are struggling right now, in an abusive family system to give them hope, what would that be? So I would say you're, everything you're going through, the pain, the suffering, the abuse, it is all terrible. I don't care what form, it could be verbal abuse, physical abuse, whatever it is, it is bad and it's bad enough. And a lot of times I think people don't feel like it's bad enough or they're deserving of help or support but there is help out there. And I think everybody aside from abuse is entitled and can benefit from help. Now it's not easy and it's hard and you need some resources, but it's out there. And so I just like to remind people that it's very scary and it's very hard to take that leap, but there is someone out there that can help you and safety to me is the utmost importance. And so once you're able to find that safety, then you can start your journey of healing and um, kind of getting through whatever it is you're dealing with. And that the aloneness or the loneliness that's going on or the feeling that no one understands uh, I would just say that it's not that you're not going to feel that because I still feel that a lot. It's just that you're not alone with that. Mm. A lot of us feel so alone and that no one understands. And so I don't think that goes away, but you're just not alone in feeling that there are other people that are feeling probably something very similar. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That's, so true and um such a powerful message and for women to hear um i'll sort of wrap up my piece in that like i always end 
things with like quotes and stuff. It's my like dorky little quirk, but like <laughs> quotes for years and they've really helped me. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted to share them briefly if I could. Uh, oh yeah just because I would love that they say it a little bit nicer than I do um and so the first one is just that it's not your job to change your family you can only take responsibility for yourself and your own actions the other one is you cannot have a different childhood but you can give your inner child the childhood she or he never had and then Mm -hmm. the last would be sort of what we were talking about since So since you all had the resources within you to survive, you all have the resources within you to heal. And so kind of the ones that relate to what we're discussing that helped me. Um, So I hope those words provide some encouragement. Those are beautiful quotes, beautiful quotes, beautifully said and so, so true. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for joining me today. I know that this is going to help so many women who are in a similar situation right now. Yeah. And um, it is just clear that that God has you in the spaces where you're being used tremendously and powerfully in other women's and children's lives. And that is just um, such a gift and and blessing you are. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all that you did today. And I appreciate, I mean, I gained a lot of knowledge that I was writing down notes of just one conversation. I learned, you know, three new things. So it's an ever ongoing process. And the more we can connect like this, the more we can help each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is that is what we're here for connection. Yeah. So thank you so much for inviting me and allowing me to be here. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome.